welcome to our very first uh, combination podcast of uh, Skeptics and Seekers, as well as the Ask an Atheist Anything podcasts. Um, today is going to be an exciting uh, day. Uh, basically, David Johnson and Andrew Knight hello. appeared on... Say hello, guys. Say hello, Andrew. Hey. Hello, Andrew. <laughs> You're a funny guy. But mostly um, David. Mostly David. Um, so, so yeah, they, they recently just appeared on an unbelievable episode, um, interacting with Randall Rouser and Justin Briley, uh, talking about uh, Justin Briley's book, Unbelievable, and their response book, Still Unbelievable. Uh, so that's what we're here today to do, uh, to do today, is uh, to have sort of a round table um, and discuss uh, some of our afterthoughts of that show, uh, as well as uh, do some follow-up on the book itself. So just before you get started, uh, so I'm Dale from Skeptics and Seekers. You've been introduced to David and Hi. Andrew, but we're also joined by somebody else. Who's that? Hello, Matthew, <laughs> the English one. Excellent, the English guy. And, uh, okay, yeah, so I, I think, got a I question. Matthew, did you actually write the uh, Gospel of Matthew, or was that just... <laughs> That was my grandfather, who I'm named after. Okay. All right. I, was, I wanted to know. All right. I'm sorry to interrupt the introduction. Go, uh, the introduction. Go ahead. No, no problem. It's actually a good segue because I was just going to um, basically I wanted Matthew um, to give us sort of a recap of what happened on Unbelievable and what what he thought about it. That doesn't seem possible because he wasn't an eyewitness. Or, oh well, he I'm heard sorry. it. I'm in, the, I'm, I'm in the I'm in the wrong mode. Uh, never mind. <laughs> I'm not Randall Okay, that's being edited. <laughs> okay. No, the is, I'm not editing okay. today. So. <laughs> okay. You're not editing. That's true. You're not editing at all. <laughs> right. Well, you two, Andrew and David, had the pleasure of being on. Uh, on the episode with uh, Justin, it was a couple of weeks ago now, but that was broadcast uh, yesterday, wasn't it? I had the pleasure of working with the two of you on the book. I enjoyed that experience, writing through the chapters, going through the editing experience of the response book to Justin. I even had an opportunity to meet Justin when he launched the book. And uh, I enjoyed just reading Justin's book, but I had challenges to it, which is why I was very happy to join you guys on writing the response book. So, Going into listening to the, the the podcast, I have some inside information in that you, I know that I had a conversation with you two after you'd been on the show, after you'd done the recording, and you had concerns about the recording. You thought it had been a, been a little bit challenging. Uh, so I came into listening to this podcast expecting some of the the, the more, um, shall I say, elevated vocal um, podcast uh, episodes that Justin has uh, produced in the past. To be honest, I didn't think it was anywhere near like that. I thought it was a, a good conversation. I thought it was a civil conversation. Yes, there were challenges, and I thought they were right and appropriate challenges. Even from uh, Randall's uh, opening, he, he described some of your comments, David, as acerbic. It's possibly not the word I would have used, but I, I knew where he was coming from. Uh, I think you and I discussed uh, while we were publishing the book uh, that I thought some of the words that you'd used were strong, but I understood them. And at the bottom, at the end of the day, I actually agreed with them and I appreciated them. But you did take a very strong tone, and I think Randall was uh, responding to that. And I think a, a strong tone is acceptable. Uh, and um, 
coming from the position that I am as an atheist, I didn't have a problem with the, the tone of those. Uh, so a couple of the bits uh, that Randall had a, uh, had a problem with, I won't go into all of the detail, but you used phrases like cocaine of certainty, which I think is one expression which may we may come, come back to. I get that. It's one of the criticisms I have of belief systems, is that belief gives you uh, the opportunity to be certain about things which... Um, you should otherwise be certain about. And so I think that was a, a valid uh, criticism there. Um, moving on, I think there was a big chunk in the middle about the, the moral argument. And uh, I think with the moral argument, both sides made very strong points, but I'm not really convinced that any conclusion was, was made to. I'm not going to talk in terms of winners and losers, but I, I don't think there was a, a case of a, a meeting of minds or a coming together on, a, on any kind of agreement there. And I don't think any of the points that were made were sufficient to annihilate the other side, if you see what I mean. So it's probably a no-score draw, is uh, to use a sporting analogy uh, on that one, is what I've used. And I know we're going to come back to morality, so I won't go any more clear on on that. The um, the minimal facts of the resurrection... Of the re resurre resurrection. Um, that was... Uh, that sounded like a more difficult conversation, to be quite honest. Uh, it, it went round about. I think it slightly went uh, on a tangent a bit when uh, Paul was uh, brought into it and it got a little bit diverted onto uh, Paul's conversion experience rather than trying to stick with uh, the resurrection. But I think there was a point that was trying to be made about Paul, which I think was quite a good point, was that if the resurrection was convincing to to reasonable people at that time, why weren't people who heard about it at that time, like Paul, also convinced? And I think that's a that's a point that's worth coming uh, back to uh, as well, because uh, I quite liked that point. Um, and then I got a little bit, oh, how did it end? Crumbs, I've listened to this three times, and I still can't remember how... It's using how the living it, Christian reality. Yes, that's right, it was. Um and that one, this one is is harder to argue with evidence and facts because it's all about what you're more more comfortable with as an individual. And again, good points were made on on both sides. Um, I really, really did like the way that you finished off with your closing remarks, David. I think somebody on the forum has already made a comment about that. It was almost as though you'd written that and been polishing that for the past month and you had it ready to go out. But you're going to tell me now that you did it off the cuff, aren't you? Uh, but I did uh, in, if enjoy... It'll, if it'll increase my legend, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but all in, it was a... It was a good episode, I think. It's probably going to generate, I hope it's going to generate quite a bit of discussion. Uh, there's probably loads of scope for follow-on questions to come back to. I hope it's going to bring more people to reading the book that we've written, and I hope it's going to bring more people to listening to our podcasts. It's already, bring, uh, it's already, it's already bringing additional readers, um, tracking the website statistics just since the show aired on Friday and reasonpress.net's um, visit statistics have increased by four or five fold just since the uh, just since the podcast Brilliant. went live. Nice. Yeah, skeptics and seekers uh, also had a similar uh, uh, upgrade in, uh, in in listenership. 
since then. Now, not not dramatic, but uh, apparent. Mm. Nice. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think um, at this point, after Matthew's um, brief introduction, there, just maybe within the next within about two minutes, if you guys do, you, do you or Andrew have any uh, any follow up thoughts now that it's all said and done, and, and you've been able to listen to yourself on the air? Is, the, is there any quick sort of follow up within you know two or three minutes that you guys would like to say? Uh, I've got lots of follow up. I'll save it for uh, after Q and A. So oh, I, will, okay. I will I will exercise some, uh, some uh, discretion. How about you, Andrew? I think the only thing that I would say at this point in this podcast is that David and I have not been on any other podcasts at the level of unbelievable until we aired on unbelievable. And it's worth pointing out that unbelievable gets something like a quarter of a million downloads a month. So they actually get about two and a half million downloads a year. And we took on Unbelievable as the first big podcast we had ever done. I will say that we both found it uh, a daunting proposition. And, you know, that's part of the impetus for this podcast is for us to be able to talk about that and in some ways wind down from it, but also uh, give a fuller description of the experience and thoughts that we had uh, in the middle of that show and, um, you know, to, to share more fully uh, what happened. I, also, I will also say that one of the reasons I wanted uh, Dale to be in this position of uh, hosting this show is because in the spirit of skeptics and seekers, it gives, uh, Dale can stand in as the voice of the uh, Christian uh, who was not there on the show. Uh, and so he can ask the questions that, you know, Christians might ask uh, after hearing the show. And, you know, if Dale wasn't here, that, that voice wouldn't be represented. So it's important uh, to uh, to me that that voice will always be represented in the things that I do. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, I guess. So I'm, I'm up to the task, up to the challenge. What, what were you going to say, Andrew? Maybe one more uh, plug here. This is, this is somewhat shameless, so apologies. <laughs> Skeptics and Seekers is a fantastic platform. And I want to uh, plug Skeptics and Seekers here. It's a, it's a written blog as well as a podcast. I think it's incredibly well written and produced. So strongly encourage anyone listening to head over to com and uh, have a read and a listen. Yeah, Likewise. actually don't, don't, don't go to that uh, site, please. Go to skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. Oh, all of us. The idiots who own skepticsandseekers.com. Screw those guys. Uh, skepticsandseekers.wordpress.com. <laughs> And that, that's all right, Andrew. By that's the way, correct. I, I am the guy I, I, that owns skepticsandseekers.com. It's just, that's just not how the URL is. <laughs> and, and Andrew, it's it's not a problem whatsoever. I, I messed up my first time, too. I reversed the seekers and skeptics uh, and, the, you know, from the proper skeptics and seekers. So don't feel bad about getting that wrong at all. Um, but it's good that David corrected the, the record there. But um, yes, one more. Sorry, sorry, yeah. not quite, not quite finished with the plugs there. 
Um, so there is another podcast. It is the other podcast that we mentioned at the beginning, that is Ask an Atheist Anything. And for the Christians who want to come and ask questions, if you listen to this show or you listen to the Unbelievable episode uh, or you read the book, uh, Still Unbelievable, or perhaps you just want to ask atheists what they have for breakfast, come over to reasonpress.net. Babies, <laughs> newborns, usually eight months old or less is uh, for, for breakfast. You're, you're being edited. I just want you to head over. <laughs> not head over. That's what they think anyway. They, they all think it. <laughs> so please, please come to reasonpress.net. Uh, that is where you can find Matthew Taylor and I hosting Ask an Atheist Anything, and you can ask your question in writing. We'll answer the question on air, or if you're a slightly braver soul, come over and ask a question and get in contact with us, and we will happily air a live show with you. So that's ReasonPress.net and Skeptics and Seekers, and all four of us look forward to hearing from you. Excellent. So uh, I guess getting started into the this roundtable discussion, um, I've been chosen as the moderator. And what I've tried to do is uh, not just look at the show, but also the book, still the response book, Still Unbelievable as, as well. And I've come up with a few questions for each author, uh, as well as a few general questions. But um, the way it'll work is I'll, I'll ask the question um, to the author, uh, and then they'll you know, have, you know, five minutes or so to give their response. Uh, and then we'll open it up for, you know, another for some time where everyone can interact with that specific question and give their thoughts. Um, so my first question comes from chapter one, uh, and this is Matthew's uh, chapter. So um, I was trying to look, uh, you, you had a bunch of different topics re related there, but uh, one of the first ones was related to Big Bang cosmology or the Kalam cosmological argument. Um, and in it, you, you mentioned that uh, quite correctly that the burden of proof is on the theist, uh, sorry, t is on the theist to establish this argument. And one of the premises there is that uh, the universe began to exist. It had a, a beginning, therefore it requires a cause. Um, now, I know that there's various eternal uh, cosmological models that skeptics try to appeal to and, you know, try in order to say that this second premise is false. Um, but one, one thing, I, I was curious, if uh, a Christian were to, let's say they refuted every single cosmological model that we're currently aware of uh, and showed them to be improbable uh, as explanations, would you at that point be willing to accept premise two uh, as true or would you still hold off and say well no there's always there's something that we're waiting for we don't know you know there could be some explanation that allows the universe to be eternal uh <clears throat> excuse me good question there's a couple of issues i have with the question which i'll push back on and then carry on and try and answer um firstly um, there's a difficulty in establishing that the universe began to exist because time, as we experience it, is intrinsically bound into the matter of the universe. So the beginning of time and the beginning of the universe are the same event. So we've got a, a difficulty here, be it um, physics or philosophy. Uh, you've got a how can you have a before 
for a point where there is no time because before is a temporal uh, um, word. So there, there really, because the, in the way that we currently experience the universe and time, the universe has existed since the beginning of time. And there's a challenge there in getting to before that because you're, you're stepping outside the time which creates its own issues. So there's, there's a difficult, there's challenge there. And personally, as a personal opinion, I, I'm not particularly bothered by whether the universe is past eternal or whether it actually had the starting point. That, I don't think either of those are a particular issue for me and neither of those force me uh, on their own to consider any kind of God as being the, the point of the, the universe. So even if the universe did start at, at a point and we can we can show that it, it started at a point and it, it had a cause or it had a beginning or however you want to describe it, that that fact on its own doesn't really get me, or that's possibly not really the, the question that you're actually trying to ask me, uh, but that doesn't get me to theism anyway. Okay. Uh, so yeah, there's a, there's a couple of issues uh, with that on me on on that question. Was there a second part to the question? Um, oh yeah, the other the other bit was um, that's right, eliminating the the improbable explanations. I don't think that's necessarily a good way to get get to an answer because if you've got a list of uh, potential explanations for something and you eliminate all of them. How can you ever know that that list of it, things that you've eliminated is the, the fin finality of the options that you've got? So I don't think that's really the the most wise way of, of getting to an answer. If you've got a list of options, um, yes, eliminate some of them, but eliminating all bar one doesn't guarantee that that one is is the answer. You need to come up with something positive that says that's the one you're looking for. Okay, and uh, yeah, I guess at this point we'll just open it up for a little bit. Uh, David or Andrew, do you do you guys have anything to add to that, or are you pretty much in agreement with Matthew? Yeah, beginning of the universe stuff. Um, I don't know how the universe began, and neither do you. And that's that's the answer, no matter uh, who I'm talking about. And so, to propose that uh, our ignorance. Is, is the sum of things that we can imagine right now, and so what's left must be God. Uh, you know, I just put God in our, our ignorance, the sum of things that we can imagine right now. It, we can't prove positively any of them right now. I don't know that we will ever be able to prove positively any of them. And uh, so I, I don't see how getting to God from ignorance helps us. I mean, you can you can see the ignorance in the Kalam formation. I'm not saying that Kalam was a stupid man, he was a smarter man than me, but in, in his time, uh, he thought it was a pretty pat and solid notion uh, that everything has a beginning. You say that in a, in a physics class today, uh, a lot of eyebrows would go up uh, and people would say, what? What's this you say? So yeah, I don't. It, not only does does it not get us to God, but I, we don't get off the first premise. Uh, and and what we're really doing is arguing from ignorance uh, and credulity. We're saying, oh no, how could this possibly have happened if it doesn't have a classical beginning the way we think it does? That's not science. Okay. And Andrew, uh, any anything to add, or you're you're happy? 
No, I, th I think I want to come at it from a, a slightly different direction. I think I'd like to attempt to impose some methodology on the question. So maybe I can ask you, I'm not trying to shift the burden of proof, but I am trying to lay a, a foundation for, for methodology here. If you, uh, Most Christians that I know, that certainly doesn't uh, encompass all 2.4 billion Christians in the world, but most of the Christians that I know accept that uh, the God that they propose is a disembodied mind. Is that your position, Dale, that yeah. God is a... Okay, all right, fair enough. So I, I won't be misrepresenting you then. Uh, as far as I can tell. Oh, uh, well, just a correction. Disembodied minds, plural. He's got three minds. Oh, okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah. so, <laughs> Same thing. That's, that's fair, although the the same question I think will will apply. So I don't know what that means. I can't separate disembodied from nothing. And so right out of the right out of the gate, when you say to me, a disembodied mind created something from nothing. So we're talking about ex nihilo here in Genesis one. When you say disembodied mind, right out of the gate, I have no idea what that could possibly mean. And so what I would like to ask is, if I had a disembodied detector that could detect this disembodied state, what would it be made of? Where would I place it? What would it detect? Because as far as I can tell, arguing for a disembodied mind is arguing for the very nothing that Christians insist God is not. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, cool. Thank I, you. Can I, can I throw sure. in there? I know, I know I said I had nothing to say, and then I keep... <laughs> we know you better. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, it's just... So it, this, is, this is more of a theological uh, uh, take on it rather than a scientific take. Uh, but I mean, just just kind of riffing on uh, what Andrew said there for a moment. I mean, does God have body envy? Uh, because if if he is disembodied, a spirit, whatever spirit is, and he lived in a whole spirit realm, and he's perfectly happy and satisfied, then there's nothing physical. Why why would he even want to create something physical, a physical universe? That seems to be crazy. Is, is he thinking to himself, man, I, I wonder what, what it would be like if, you know, there was substance here. Uh, so it, it seems to me that if God really wanted to create something for beings that could commune with him, he would create other disembodied beings in another disembodied universe. Uh, so I don't, I'm, I'm not entirely sure from a theological uh, perspective why God would even want to create uh, a universe like ours if he comes from something very different. Fair enough. All right. Well, um, very good. So uh, what we'll do then is now I'm going to move on to a question specifically for David. Um, and this first one comes from your chapter you six. Know, you, you could you could uh, take a stab at answering some of the objections if you want to. I'm not going to come yes. back at you, but if you, I mean, you can have the last it. word. You're the... You're, you you're the soul, yeah. You, uh, uh, Dale, you're oh. the you're the you're the spear catcher here, and if you're going to represent the Christian, they're going to want you to maybe take a stab at uh, answering the objections. Give give oh, it a go, okay. and whatever you well, I'm, say. I'm up for that too. I, 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 I thought I was let just, it stay. I was, 
Okay, I thought I was just being the moderator, though. I didn't know I was supposed to be arguing so, anything. You're now Justin Briarly defending his book. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome well, then, to the mosh pit. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I'm not good when I'm not prepared. So, okay. I so, know. Yeah. Um, I think there was a point in that. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, I... I do think that the Kalam cosmological argument is a good is a good one. Um, I'm trying to remember your points. So, yes, it's it's everything that begins to exist has a cause that doesn't necessarily have to be a temporal cause in terms of you know it doesn't make sense to us what was uh, before the beginning of space and time uh, as though there is some sort of you know cause within time. Uh, that preceded the universe. Um, David, what was some of the other stuff that you... Uh, can't, I didn't write down your guys' points because I thought you guys were just... I didn't expect that I had to respond to it. Yeah, I didn't uh, write it down either, Dale. Uh, so I don't, I don't actually what? remember. That was, um, that was minutes ago. Minutes. Okay. I know. I'm just... <laughs> um, okay, so... But yeah, so I, I think that... It's true that the Kalam cosmological argument doesn't necessarily get you to a god. Um, there, there are additional arguments that try to um, establish that, um, you know, that are sort of appended to the argument itself. Um, and you would need to, you know, tack those on to the Kalam cosmological argument itself in order to get the conclusion that the cause of the universe is God. Um, in terms of eliminating yeah, well, I guess, I guess it would work as sort of, uh, you know, an inference to the best explanation. If if all of the available ones that we have are improbable explanations, um, then yeah, I think that you would you would be logical in inferring that the best explanation that we have, based on the evidence um, for the Big Bang, for the beginning of space and time. Uh, you know, I, I think that's positive evidence that the universe did begin to exist as opposed to, uh, you know, just arguing from ignorance. I think that was one of David's, the other second maker. Yeah, it's just to pick up a clarification um, yes. on that. Um, if, if the only option we had left was that the universe began to exist, then that's what the evidence points to, then yes, I would accept that the universe began to exist. Obviously, there'd be other questions beyond that. But if that was the only option on the table that fits, then I would accept it as the option that fits. Cool. I'm still hoping for an answer uh, to how you distinguish disembodied from nothing and how you would expect a disembodied uh, mind to be responsible for embodied minds. And how would you propose that we detect this disembodiedness? Because the Kalam cosmological argument from the Christian perspective and the one that you uh, agreed that you promote mm -hmm. is a disembodied mind or, or minds in the case of the Trinity. So I'm not trying to, to mispaint your response, but okay. uh, there so, is the issue of understanding what that could possibly be. Right. So, uh, in the first place, to be a bit of a smart aleck, actually, God isn't totally disembodied anymore because Jesus is uh, embodied now, uh, even up in heaven. Love uh, to have that conversation. 
Yeah, but in terms of in terms of answering your question, so God God is a substance. That's meaning it's a a huh? thing. It's not nothing. It's a thing that stands under and bears up its properties. God has certain properties. So it's a what thing are those that, properties? He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. Um, you know, he has three sets of cognitive faculties sufficient for personhood or minds. Um, okay. How do I correct? detect that? Right. So these are, these are things that you're saying about this proposed disembodied mind. But these are only things you're saying about this disembodied mind. So I was, I was quite clear about how do you prove that? Right. But your first question was, what what is it compared to nothing? How does it compare to nothing? So that's what I was answering there. Well, you still of- haven't, though. You, what you've said is this is what you think this mind could be. But these are all propositions, and you've said, in essence, that this all-knowing mind, that this all-knowing is a something. Yeah. Now, now I'm, I'm asking you to— How do you detect it? Right. I, so I'm not asking you what the propositions for the mind are. I, we, I, I understand <laughs> what a mind is and, and what a mind does. What I am asking you to do— is demonstrate that it is possible for a mind at any level of capacity to be disembodied. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I think that there are various arguments that, like, I can think of a lot to get into. Like, um, if if I can prove, okay, um, I'm trying to remember. So there's, you know, what the logical law of identity is, right? Yes. Okay. It is uh, often considered the first law of logic, along with, with two others, uh, the excluded middle and non and non contradictions. So yeah, I'm I'm familiar with identity. Okay. Um, so there's a modal argument uh, that says um, if it is possible, so there's a po- logically possible world in which um, a in which I exist without a body. So ways that people get this is based on the conceivability of ghosts or near-death experiences. Your, your mind is existing apart from your bi- uh, body, and this is log- a logically possible uh, or perfectly conceivable option. That's sort of the first premise. But then through the law of identity, well, if, if it's logically possible for your mind to exist in a, a possible world without your body, they're not identical because your mind has a property uh, it, you know, that doesn't, it's not shared with your embodied mind. So that would be one argument. There, there are some other arguments that I think could be used to argue that it's possible for a mind to exist apart from your body. So I accept that um, we, we will run short on time if we chase this one question any further. I would actually like to follow this up at some point, either on skeptics and seekers or ask an atheist anything, because I think there's, there's room for more discussion. Sure. Yeah. 
Sounds good. All right. So, so moving on then, um, this is my question for David. Um, and David had multiple chapters, so I'm not going to be covering anywhere near um, all the stuff that he wrote. But this first question, I think, is one that he'll appreciate. It comes from chapter six, and this is his chapter on the problem of evil, or as he calls it, suffering. Um, but it, it, it also relates to lots of other atheist you know, arguments, such as the hiddenness of God, and, and he has a whole list of other related arguments there. Um, so what I wanted to ask you, David, is you're well familiar, I think all of you probably are well familiar with my Molinistic type answer that we live in, in a world with uh, evil or where God is hidden to the point that he is. This allows God, this allows for the free will, through free will people, more sale, geez, more souls are saved in this world than any other created world. Um, and you've admitted to me, David, that you think that, well, this, this is pure philosophical speculation, but it is possible for all you know. You, you it's not sort of an equal possibility so far as you, you're aware of. Uh, but yet you seem to be implying that these arguments, you know, proving that God probably doesn't exist or, or is an improbable proposition. So that at that point, once you say it's more probable than not that God doesn't exist in light of these features, um, how do you meet your burden of proof? How do you defeat or show that my Molinistic answer is improbable? It's not enough, you know, just to say it works as an equal po equal possibility, but there's no proof that it's true. You have to prove that it's probably not true. So how would you respond? It doesn't matter. Uh, okay. But let me let me just uh, quick clarification. Uh, I do not conflate the problem of suffering with the problem of evil. Uh, Justin does that. I I was uh, probably the sole voice in the project that insisted no, we need a separate chapter on the problem of evil. It's two different problems. And so you are uh, talking about chapter six, which is uh, in fact the response to the problem of, of suffering. But uh, there is, uh, for those uh, uh, who are picking up the book, a chapter devoted to the problem of evil. So that is that is a separate chapter, a separate ar argument. Uh, so that said, uh, your Molinistic argument, um, respectfully, does not matter to me. Uh, and so the, the Molinistic argument, as, as I understand it, goes something like this. Um, there's, there could be good reasons for God to allow or even cause uh, a great deal of suffering. Under Molinism, there's no, there's no reason to separate out allows from cause. Uh, because the, the whole idea is that God has a good reason for it. So I do cover this at the uh, end of that chapter on suffering where Christians devolve into this uh, nebulous reasons. God just has his own reasons. We don't know what they are. Uh, we don't have to know what they are. Uh, just understand that God is good, and whatever his reasons are are good enough. And even though it looks evil and it feels evil and walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's still good because God has his reasons. So I find that to be probably the weakest uh, of the Christian arguments, quite frankly, because that's really the Christian just giving up. That's, that's the Christian saying, I, I got nothing here just trust that God has its reasons. And at that point, you have to give me a reason to just trust because God hasn't given me a reason to trust. He's given me a reason to distrust. 
uh, because he's allowing and or causing a lot of suffering through evil. So I, I see no reason why I should just trust uh, God's motives, which I don't know, in his undefined nebulous reasons that don't seem to justify the ends. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I actually find the, uh, that answer to be not an answer, but uh, giving up on the answer. Okay, uh, so yeah, at this point we'll, we'll open it up. Uh, Matthew, you haven't spoken in a while. Do, do you have anything to follow up on this? Um, yeah, I've never really been, to be quite frank, uh, particularly convinced by either the problem of evil or the problem of, of suffering, uh, e even when I was a Christian. Um, I'm going to go into details. My, I, there's a lot of missionary people in my family, and between them there's been quite a few tragedies. And I've heard both uh, God does his good through all things, and I've heard, uh, well, that happened because of the sin that was going on and it was a direct punishment from God. I've heard both of those growing up and neither of them were, uh, gave me any comfort or, or any reason to, to love God even even as a Christian. So I'm, it, it genuinely doesn't swing with me. Uh, you can throw the, the, the problem at me as much as you like and say that it, it demonstrates God's and Quite frankly, I'm not going to be convinced. Sorry. Oh, no problem. Um, and, and Andrew, anything to contribute? Uh, only very quickly, based on the last response, which went on. It seems to me that the Christian is trying to have it both ways. I think this is what Matthew was saying, too, so maybe this is just me agreeing. Uh, it seems that there's an insistence from Christians that God loves us all and wants the, the very best possible outcome for us, but there's also the acknowledgement that there's evil in the world and God is trying to work through that evil. Those things seem to be fundamentally at odds to me. If God wants the best for me and I can't get it, uh, then I'm not sure how to determine he wants the best for me. And equally, evil in the world seems to argue against the concept that there's an all-powerful God that can maximize the good in my life. So I know that there's this idea of, a, of an eternal plan, but again, it's just an idea. And until God opens up the books of life and lets me audit them to uh, the best of my ability, I see no reason to conclude that there is either a plan uh, or a, a slightly better plan or, or God's perfect plan. It sounds like word salad to me. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've spoken about this a lot. Uh, so, like, uh, the only thing I, I would say is I think that so long as it's an equal possibility, it's a valid option that we have to remember who bears the burden of proof, who is making the claim. And, uh, you know, whether it's problem of suffering, uh, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. I, I thought it was the same uh, thing, but it's you that are saying God, if you're making the claim, God existence is improbable because of this, because of suffering or because of the hiddenness of God or whatever you want to say, um, you have to prove that this Molinistic answer is improbable in order to establish your case. So, um, yeah, I think that's all I would say. It's just it, it's important to understand who is making the claim and who bears the burden of proof. So that's all I'll say. Uh, someone who wants to talk? 
Yeah, that's a, a fair response. And in the same way that I don't, I'm not unconvinced by the arguments uh, for God using uh, the problem of evil. I don't, I equally don't use it to argue that there isn't a God, probably for that reason. I don't actually say that the answer is uh, improbable. I say the answer is irrelevant. Uh, the, Mol okay. the Molinistic answer is utterly irrelevant. So um, it, that's, that's okay. slightly different. Okay. All right, cool. Uh, so let's move on to Andrew. It's your turn. Um, so this, uh, Andrew's chapter was chapter 11. Um, and I also had to get, get one from the Unbelievable podcast. But um, so this is one that me and you have uh, briefly spoken of before, and it's it's on your issue. I'm uh, sorry. Oh, I was just active listening. I, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no worries. Um, so, so, yeah, it's on your issue of defining faith. What What is what, what is faith? What does that mean? So, um, you know, I, I know that from reading your chapter that you're familiar with the various definitions um, that people get from the Bible. You know, I, I take sort of a one that it, it means trust. Um, however, you're, you're probably familiar that, um, you know, some faith isn't uh, blind, sort of claiming a blind faith. They, Christians, I certainly claim that I have an evidence-based faith uh, or an evidence-based trust. Um, so what I think the Bible is saying is that, okay, there are things unseen, like Jesus' second coming. I don't have any direct proof uh, that that's going to happen, but I trust, uh, based on the evidences, I know that Christianity is true, and based on that, I have faith that yeah, Jesus will set, allow me into heaven or save me um, with the second coming. So I was just wondering, how, uh, you know, how do you get that the biblical definitions of faith are incompatible um, and what do you make of this notion of evidence-based faith? Fair enough. You might have to help me through this answer because there's a lot to pull apart there. Well, okay. I'll start with I'll start with two bits. In your in your question just now, you said I don't have any direct evidence, but I, I have belief. Okay. Well, that right out of the chute, that sounds to me like a contradiction. Now I accept to you that it may not seem so, okay? But I don't know what you mean uh, by not having any direct evidence and still believing the thing, okay? So right away, I think that's a problem for me. The next bit, I think I would pull from uh, Hebrews 11.1 1 and following. So Hebrews 11.1 1, uh, is, the, is the idea of the, of the hope of things not seen. Right, and I don't have it in front of me. If one of you has a, a Bible that can flip to Hebrews 11, I'm happy with any translation, but I don't think any of us need it. Uh, Hebrews 11:1 1 is quite clear about how some Christians form their faith. This is a, a faith in things that aren't seen. I'll ask again: What is this unseen stuff? If I had a disembodied detector, what would it be made of? Where would we put it, and what would it detect? Because as far as I can tell, disembodied is no different from nothing. Okay. Um, so, yeah, at this point, I'll open it up first to uh, let's go with David this time first. Do you, do you have any follow-up on that? or John chapter 20, um, Thomas uh, gets into the game. He wasn't there when Jesus appeared to the eleven. Uh, 
and uh, Jesus comes around. Thomas, uh, put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend uh, your hand and put it in my side. Uh, do not continue in your unbelief, but believe. Verse 28, Thomas replies to him, my Lord, my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those people who have not seen and yet have believed. That, sir, is the manifesto for blind faith. Okay, uh, uh, Matt? Um, I think David took my answer, but um, in, a, in a more more succinct way. Um, if this goes on a tangent, feel free to free to stop me. I'm because this touches on something that is, I think, is a worthy of a bigger subject, and uh, I see it quite a lot in the discussions, and it's in the, in the discussion of of faith, because when talking about faith in the context of, of religion, we generally generally mean faith as David just described it. Um, someone tells you something, and you just have faith that, that it's true. You read the text in the Bible. You have faith that the accounts that have been described are true, and uh, that, so that goes extends on to God and Jesus' miracles, uh, etc. And I've moved to a mindset where I don't take things like that uh, and believe them as given to me without questioning. You know, if someone tells me something like that, I immediately think, well, can we fact check that? I see something on the internet and someone says something like that, you know, oh no, vaccines cause autism. Can we fact check that, please? And, the, and I see an awful lot of, not necessarily with the, with the religious, um, but I see an awful lot of that kind of thing, accepting things, claims that have been made. I live over the water from a nuclear power station. The stuff that we see locally about how this nuclear power station is um, bad for us and all that, and people are repeating all these stories, all these, in quotes, scare quotes, facts, which aren't actually facts. And I've had all sorts of conversations which end up going in all sorts of horrible ways. And I say, do we know this is true? Let's check the facts. So my attitude is always is to question things. So if we're talking about faith in the context that, that David described it, I quite frankly don't want anything to do with that kind of faith. So I, my back can be put up. I don't have many buttons, but I do have a bit of a button where I see things like, oh, you atheists, you non-believers, you have just as much faith uh, as, uh, as I do as a Christian, or you get uh, the Frank Turek's of the world who say, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I kind of get rancored at that kind of thing because they're trying to say that I've got faith that is described in the Bible that they're supposed to have. And the faith in the Bible is held up as something being great. But when it's applied to me, it's a bad thing. And it's like kind of like dragging me down to that level because it's the only way they can make me dirty. And yeah, it's probably best I stop there because I feel I've gone a bit, bit distracted. But this is a big subject I'd love to cover another time. I, Fair I enough. just want to jump back in and say I, I really appreciate your uh, answer, <laughs> Matthew. So I I thought it was I thought it was fantastic. And I wanted to make a suggestion, uh, just a format suggestion. I can be shouted down, uh, but uh, just due to time and because I, I uh, have seen the notes, um, I, I suggest we do one more round of questions instead of two more. Uh, okay. and leave leave time for some other statements. 
Okay. How about a, that makes how about sense. a counter proposal? Um, I say we do all three rounds, but perhaps um, break the episode up into two for the uh, for the listeners. Yeah, I'm good either if way. We're going, if, we, if we're going to do that, I'm going to run out of time. So we may have to do a second phone call because this could be going on till nine o'clock for my time. So we'll yeah. do a counter counter proposal. Um, my counter counter proposal is this is so much fun. We should do it once a month. Um, <laughs> we, should, Loud okay. we, should, we should make it a feature. <laughs> Loud cheers. <laughs> do I get wine every time? Yes. Yes. Awesome. You, uh, you need to provide the wine every time. <laughs> So, okay, given that we are, so now I've got a, a counter, counter, counter proposal combination. Um, so maybe we do one more round with the promise that we will cover the last three questions on the next scheduled combined episode. Yes. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not 100% sure. Like, if I, yeah, if I can squeeze it in um like it sounds like it might not be a problem but i'm not i can't 100 percent guarantee it until i you know like once they start at work and finding out what the schedule is um so yeah let, like don't count me as 100 percent guaranteed of being able to do it every single time now, we all know that all you need is to be 53 percent sure so we can kill. <laughs> well, I think look, I think that all raises. I think that raises a valid concern for all of us. I, yeah, let, let, like I, whenever I'm, put it this way, whenever I, if I have the time, then 100. percent Yeah, of course I'll I'll do this. I don't know what you guys would want to do. Like, would you just pick a random topic and have a discussion on it then, or possibly the topics of the day, possibly more topics of the book because we've got lots of topics of the book to do. And uh, we might even rotate the uh, book authors uh, on those times. But yeah, let, let's just write each other a promissory rain check that sometime in the not too distant future, we'll come together and do it again. Would that work for you, Dale? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. Uh, I think I like Dale's uh, objection in the sense that, uh, you know, if one of us can't be here, three is a quorum. Uh, and I like all four of us being here. Um, but you know, this is uh, this is a combined episode where it's best efforts for the four of us. Uh, and as long as we're all trying to be here, I think it's great. And if somebody can't or or two people can't, there's no reason that any two of us can't uh, can't say some useful things. It, and, and we uh, might even get Randall to agree to stand in as the friendly Christian. I'm I'm awful. Who'd be the unfriendly one then? <laughs> Thanks, Matthew. Nail that rabble rouser. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I like I like the way Andrew Andrew phrased that. Like it's it probably won't be an issue, but let's just make it free. If you got okay, each month you, we have something set up. Whoever can make it can make it. Great. Whoever can't, you know, it's it's sort of that. Just do it like on that basis, an ad hoc basis, so to speak. Here, here's the deal to to skeptics and seekers, listeners. I 100% guarantee that we will do this again real soon. Don't worry about the details. It's going to happen. 
Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> as the as a host for Masking Atheist, anything, David and I have been friends for so long that neither of us remember the beginning. So that could have been as late as the day before yesterday, but uh, <laughs> neither of us remember. And uh, and you were created say, with your friendship intact. Say that again. You were created with your friendship intact. <laughs> yeah, they, they, see, see, that's probably true. Um, so. And we got one host uh, from from both sides that will say, look, if David wants to go to Mike, I'll go to Mike. I'll make the time. And whatever that means, there'll be another podcast in the in the foray uh, in the foray feed. So cool. Yeah. So so we'll make it happen. And by the way, Matthew, I always want you along. Always. Oh, you're so sweet to me, mate. And, and Dale, I always want you alone, buddy. Oh, uh, you're, you're so oh, no. sweet to me now. <laughs> this is not how you talk when it's just me and you, though. <laughs> I don't have a sick bucket in my office. I should have been warned. Edit marker. I, oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So let's let's get back into the the show then. Okay. Um, so so that was a question for Andrew. Uh, so now we're okay. So going back to you, Matthew. Um, so I'm just trying to. Hey pick. Dale, would it be fair you, to yeah. read the next two questions to Matthew and let him pick one of the two? That's what I was just about to do, actually. Um, oh, yeah. Well, so that's I, because you're awesome. Um, okay, so there's don't one. be don't be complimenting my guest host, Dale. <laughs> I think you're awesome, more awesome uh, than he thinks you are. Thank you so much. I'll, I'll take compliments from all of you, but uh, I don't want to make you sick. I'm not, so. enter. not going to put anything on the table with that. I'm, I'm outdone. <laughs> okay. Okay, so so Matthew, um, so I had one on your fine-tuning uh, thing, and this, this basically was a question related to your notion of God's efficiency because of the, the vastness of space and also the fact that, uh, or vastness of unused space, and the fact that there's so much time before humans uh, showed up. And you were trying, I think you were trying to say that um, somehow Christians argue that this was necessary to, in order to be more efficient. Um, so I was just going to ask you, well, actually, I, I think there are other reasons Christians you know, explain these facts, such as it, it's it's beauty. God created it because it's beautiful. He likes beautiful things. Or there's that Molinistic answer that I already got into. Um, and then there was, there could be, uh, there's a third one. Like, geez. Oh, uh, yeah. Like maybe there's some future purpose for it as well. As well. Like, um, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, human beings will expand out and get to explore all of these areas in the universe or something. Uh, and then the second part was just going to be saying efficiency isn't really a standard that applies to God. That's, you know, something for limited beings. Um, and then my second question for you, if you want this one, this was on your rational intelligibility argument or, you know, like, yeah, why shall we save that one for another time? Because I, yeah. that one I need to look into more and I, there's probably some reading I want to do. So I, um, as we're cutting on time, I'm not going to attempt that one now. So uh, let's st stick with the fine tuning, and we can um, I, I can be more prepared for for that third question um, ne next time we talk. Okay. Um, yeah, there's there's quite a lot to talk about uh, in the fine tuning. So I'll try and be as as brief and, and succinct as I as I can. I think the 
one of the issues for me, and this is one of the reasons why I came out of faith. You know, I came out of faith from a science point of view rather than from a questioning point of view. And because I, I used to be a young earth creationist now, I was a very literalist young earth creationist. And looking out and understanding the science that we, we know now about the universe and the, the growth of the universe and the spread of the universe and, and how large it, it looks old, it looks gradually formed, mm-hmm. um, and you've got all all these um, these structures in it, and we've got the the multiple generations of stars, and everywhere you look, it all looks natural, and we've got explanations for how things work. Some of these explanations have taken a long time to to work out. I think I bring up the the LIGO experiment uh, in my chapter because that was 100 years from the idea of gravitational waves being postulated to us actually being able to build uh, an experiment big enough and sensitive enough to be able to detect them, and now we've detected them. So so that was a validation of the the physics uh, of the day, and it's not the only time that we've had that kind of thing. The Large Hadron Collider, although it hasn't, from from postulation to finding wasn't 100 years, it was was still a long period of time uh, to finding the Higgs boson. And we're finding more and more out uh, about the universe the more more we look. And it all looks natural. We can explain it eventually. And so my problem is, if we're trying to say that a, a god created that, why did he create it in such a way that everything looks natural we can explain it with with standardized physics and it works uh, with the physics models that we we know and so the way i look at it is the more we know the more we understand the more we can explain the smaller and smaller the gaps and the holes and the 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 unknowns are that a god could fit into because when we can explain it there isn't space for a god I know that's not fully everything that you've asked, but that's that is the direction I go to on that. Okay. Um, so yeah, and Andrew, do you have anything to say about God's design being inefficient or efficient? What? Only this. I thought about this uh, before the show today, and and this is my only note. It seems to me that a lot of Christian argument rides on the idea that God is is uh, has created this maximally perfect uh, universe and by maximally perfect i don't mean uh, that nothing breaks down i mean that god's purpose is to have as many souls go to heaven as possible right and that seems to me to require uh that that god has been maximally efficient I don't think that it's sensible to say that uh, God is God is out there and he's uh, he's designed things inefficiently, but yet he gets the maximum possible good out of it. And so if you're going to say that God has a design and that design leads to some outcome, I think you're necessarily left with the idea that God uh, has an efficiency characteristic and to deny it has consequences that deny the idea that he has maximized any particular element of our universe in some way. Excellent. And just before I go to David, I think I'll just say I like the way you actually said that, Andrew. I think I agree um, against what I said just a minute ago and 100% with you then. It, depending on what the, the goal or the telios is, 
um, yeah, if, if the goal is saving as many souls as possible, in that sense, yeah, God would have to be efficient in his design. Everything is here specifically allowing for that, for that outcome. Uh, that's not really a part of the teleological argument per se, but um, yeah, if, if under that guise that that's the goal, then I'm 100%, I agree with you that creation has to be efficient in that sense. Um, but yeah, so I'll turn it over to David. Do, do you have anything to say here or? Yeah, uh, fine tune for what uh, is my, my general response to the fine tuning argument. Uh, the, the Christian assumes that, you know, things look nice and neat and ordered, and so someone tuned it. But when we say that someone tuned something, uh, like an instrument, for instance, it's, it's tuned for a purpose. Uh, if, for instance, you would tune a, uh, you know, a guitar, maybe a certain type of guitar, slightly differently for jazz uh, than you would blue blues. Uh, than you would for um, uh, classical. So uh, it's, it's not just a matter of tuning everything perfectly on the note. There is, a, there, there is a way to tune things specifically for your genre. And so there's a reason for tuning, and I would like the Christian to, to respond uh, to what it is they think the world is tuned for. And I know that you, Dale, believe that it was tuned for the maximum souls being saved. That seems highly improbable, seeing that the Bible tells us that uh, the majority of people won't be saved. So that, that seems like a, a, an improbability. But even if it was true, I would suggest that you have no way of knowing that's true. That's your guess. That's your fantasy. That's your hope. But we don't know that... Uh, that the universe was tuned for the maximum number of souls to be saved. Uh, the serial killer, who is extremely successful at serial killing, could say this universe was tuned so that people would be as gullible as they are so that he could have the successful <laughs> spree that he has. And you couldn't argue that he's wrong. The hacker today would uh, argue that the universe is tuned, especially so that they have the right tools and the right kind of people with the right mindset so that they can get away with all kinds of things that they wouldn't have been a, able to get away with before. You can't argue with that because you don't have any other point of reference that says you're right and they're wrong. So I, I would suggest that until the Christian can propose what the universe is tuned for and back that up, the fine-tuning argument doesn't really work for them. Yeah, I think I think um, I'm kind of scared because I'm agreeing with David. I, I think yeah, that's a valid um, question. You know, when when you got fine tuning, fine tuned for what? There there are multiple teleological arguments. There is a teleological argument from biology that William Paley gave. Right, obviously through evolution we learned that it doesn't work in in the way that he framed it. There's the fine tuning argument from for the universe or for the origin of life that. So yeah, you need to ask, uh, you need to be specific. What does your fine tuning argument try to establish? Um, so yeah, I think I, I would agree on that. And you know, the, the fine tuning argument that I think Matthew had in mind was, wasn't really dealing, saying it was fine tuned for the maximum number of souls. It's fine tuned for, you know, allowing carbon based life or, or even human life to, to exist. So yeah, it's important to establish what you're arguing for. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll go to David now. Um, for okay, so I've got 
Uh, two things. So there's one is on your chapter eight on the problems uh, of miracles. Um, and you, I was just going to ask you about, because you say that if supernatural miracles happen, um, they violate two things that I wanted to get your take on. They violate the laws of nature, and they also violate free will. Um, my second question was going to be on chapter 10, which is, you, and that's on your specific notion of necessary evil. Um, so I was just going to get your take on, um, you know, I think we've discussed this before with your example of the coin, um, but I, I, I make a distinction between necessary potential evil versus necessary actualized evil. Um, so I was going to so ask you what you make. Let's do evil on the next one. Let's, let's do miracles now because okay. there's not nearly enough talk about miracles yeah. uh, for, from the point of view of progressive Christians. And I think it's particularly embarrassing for them, and I would like to twist the knife a little bit. Okay. Does that make Go me a it. bad man? Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> But a, go ahead and bad, ask the question, and then I will, uh, and then I will. Sure. So a better response. So yeah. So I was just interested because you you seem to have this um, notion that a lot of skeptics had that it violates uh, the laws of nature and free will, which I thought was interesting. I've not, I haven't heard that one before, but. Um, you seem to have this notion that the laws of nature and free will are inviolable. If, if there's even one thing that seems to contravene that, that you know, that's impossible to happen. Um, and I, I was wanting to know how you really establish that these are inviolable because, you know, in terms of the laws of nature, I just think they're descriptions of how nature normally operates. There's, you know, a, a new system can be fed into the the, work, the works. That's not a problem. Same with free will. Our free will is viable. I mean, I can't will to fly right now. So that in and of itself, just because something contravenes free will doesn't mean that some unbreakable rule has been broken. So what would you make of that? Okay. So you have to understand where uh, I'm coming from with these objections. Uh, these are things that Christians say when they want to uh, talk about, uh, say, the hiddenness of God, uh, or when they when they want to make a particular argument about miracles. So, from the hiddenness of God approach, uh, the Christian argument goes something like this: Well, God would not reveal Himself to everyone, otherwise it would violate their free will. And the same is true if he were to produce some convincing miracle that made everyone believe in him, then, then our, our free will would be violated. Okay. Well, so what I'm suggesting is that if, if that is true, let's just, let's just pretend that that's true, okay. that would be true if God did any miracle. So if, if the Christian is saying that God does miracles, then he obviously does not care about contravening our free will by doing miracles. So that's a bad argument. Uh, it doesn't work for the Christian. So that's, that's the angle that I'm uh, coming at that from. Gotcha. And uh, as for uh, what, was, what was the other one again? I'm sorry. Oh, violating, like, uh, the laws of nature are oh, inviolable. The laws of nature. So this is another thing. So when I was growing up, the definition of a miracle was that it violated the laws of nature, something that couldn't happen in nature. But because Christians, see, you know, Christians kind of fold like a cheap tent when someone says, okay, we'll produce a miracle. Just show me. You can end the argument right now. 
and they point out things that are not miracles. And then they start saying things like, well, a miracle is not necessarily a violation of the law of nature. Well, great. And what on earth is it? <laughs> if, it's, if it's not a violation of the law of nature anymore, um, and you're saying, well, you know, baby, baby is born. That's a miracle. Well, no, it's not. That's nature. We understand that process. Well, that sunset is so beautiful. What a miracle. No, it's not. It's nature. So it, what you're saying is there's no such thing as a miracle. Well, no, there is a miracle. Uh, then show me. Oh, but it doesn't violate the laws of nature. You see, it's an utterly ridiculous argument, no matter which way you look at it. I think it's just a losing argument uh, for the Christians. So that's that's where I'm coming from with those two things. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, Matthew, did, did you have any follow-up or anything to say? Um, no, actually. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, how about you then, Andrew? Okay. Uh, one thought. It seems to me that miracles are as much an argument against Christianity as for Christianity in one sense. Christianity is the idea that there's a God that's out there working toward some maximum purpose. Now, we talked about that a minute ago. Maybe we don't know what that is. But whatever miracles are, if there are miracles, they're sketchy, they're unpredictable, they are... Uh, they they don't seem to advantage one group over another. Uh, we can't pin them down in any in any way that's regular. You can't even tell and, when one happened. Uh, well, so I agree. It may have just happened in this podcast, and, and we wouldn't know it. Uh, based yes, on you do. I didn't have an answer to a question. That's Actually, a miracle. That was, you're right. No, that I agree. So <laughs> so here's so here's my point. Here's my point. If there is an objective out there and that objective is maximum good, for instance, or that obje- or, or uh, if, if that objective is to have the maximum number of souls in heaven or, or whatever, there doesn't seem to be a correlation between what we see as miracles and some unifying purpose for them. So even if you could find a miracle, it doesn't seem to me that uh, well. You'd have to find a group of them to sort of to sort of test this idea. But let's say that you could identify a hundred miracles. Miracles seem to be pretty random in this world, and I would like to see if it was possible to find a common thread toward which these things worked. Because if you can't, miracles don't do Christians any good. Okay, fair enough. Um, yeah, and I, I Actually, think... Sorry, I've changed oh, my mind. I, there's something I want to say. Sorry, guys. I get so much for the um, miracle. I think... Told <laughs> <laughs> you there weren't any. Yeah. I think there's a... It was, it was Andrew that, uh, that sparked off. And I went, yeah, I, there was something I wanted to say. I think miracles have a tendency to make people lazy. And rather than looking for an explanation, they go, oh, yeah, it, it was a miracle, uh, God did it uh, and and move on. And I think it works the same, the opposite way around. Um, because of the fundamentalist uh, life that I had, you know, there wasn't just a God, there was a devil. And I've had moments uh, in my life, example one, where I lost my job the week before I was supposed to preach in the church. What did somebody say? Oh, that was an attack. It was the devil coming at you. And we tend to, and I, I, the way I remember it now is, yeah, that's what it was. 
it wasn't me doing a mistake. I didn't mess up and cause myself to lose my job. The devil attacked me. And I think it's the same with, with miracles. We don't look, it stops us looking for the, the right explanation. And I think sometimes not looking for the right explanation is a detriment to us because it, 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 it stops us from achieving what we could achieve or by improving what we could approve because we haven't found the right answer. What if the miracle, yeah, but this begs the question, what if the miracle is the right answer, right? So, yeah, I would, I would just follow up that, yeah, there are two issues that you guys are sort of raising. In philosophy, there's, you know, how we define, what is a miracle, the definition of a miracle? Um, does that include natural events? Um, you know, so I, I think, I'm trying to remember back, it's, I think the technical term is providentia ordinary. Uh, and providentia extraordinary, um, and mm -hmm. under under the latter, that's correct. And okay, good. Um, and um, yeah, so the the latter event can include natural events as well as supernatural. So you know, on, on the natural sense, there's uh, I, I forget who it was, but I remember David asked me. He came on to talk about the Exodus, and he was explaining, oh, well, there's nothing supernatural going here. But what makes it a miracle is the timing, the circumstances surrounding it, um, because one thing one unlikely thing happened after, one after another within this religious context. But uh, more importantly, um, I think there, there's the issue of identifying miracles. And by gosh, I, I think I have I come up with a set of criteria to identify them. There is a way to differentiate um, through my what I call my G-Belief Authenticating Event Criteria. Um, and it's also important that I'm only in interested um, for my purposes, my in a subset of miracles. There could be random miracles of compassion out there. Maybe God is healing a Hindu or something like that, um, or someone who's an atheist, or you know, just out of compassion. But with the G belief authenticating events, I'm only interested in miracles that specifically authenticate a religious message. And, and on that front. I think that their their Christian religion is the only one religion that has those type of events. Uh, so that would be my take. Can I ask a, a follow up question? Do we have time, guys? Are you asking no, me? Quick, you can, but you can. <laughs> okay. So it sounds to me like Dale. I don't. I don't mean this to to come off wrong, but you said uh, I'm only interested in this particular kind of miracle. That sounds to me like whitewashing the evidence. How so? Well, because why, why would it why would it be relevant if just a random person person got healed with you know that's outside of a religious authenticating context? Um, God is a perfectly a liberal. Let, let's pretend the Christian God is is real and is true. <laughs> He could heal an atheist. He could heal a Hindu out of, out of compassion. Not every miracle has to be meant as a proof of a religious message or something, right? Okay. So now let's pretend that there's a miracle worker out there that isn't the Christian God. That okay. miracle worker that uh, that is not the Christian God works all the miracles that you're talking about. Now, what's the better explanation for the miracle worker? that there's a miracle worker Christian God that does one set of miracles that is to confirm himself and that he somehow has these other miracles that can't be pinned to any important idea. He's just randomly working acts of compassion. And by the way, 
those acts of compassion are to allow some uh, to allow a van full of uh, parents and kids to die while an individual single uh, in a car lives. People say uh, it was a miracle that I uh, that I wasn't in that accident. We hear that mm. kind of thing all the time. Yeah. And so if you're going to propose that there's a body of miracles and you necessarily confine yourself to some small set of that miracle uh, body, you've got to explain why those others happen, even if you don't like that they're there. Well, it depends. What, uh, yeah, we need to explain it, but um, not in the context. In term, not in the context of what I'm doing in terms of trying to find which religion is true. Let, let's pretend but, this miracle no, works. That, that, that's um, no, no, listen, that is my but, point. Okay, don't don't. Okay, but listen. So let's this miracle worker. No religious context. He's just going around healing random people. God's allowing him uh, to heal people. And then we also have Jesus doing the same thing. It's proving he does these miracles, but it takes place within a context charged with religious significance, where he's saying these events serve to authenticate the religious message. So that that's where my argument as a whole comes in. God would not allow undue confusion. If he's got a maximum goal and, and he's revealed himself, through a religious message, and we want to identify, okay, well, how do we accomplish this purpose? Which revelation is true? It's it's the context that differentiates the random miracle claims from, uh, like, I'm, yeah, from these religious authenticating miracles. That if one religion uniquely has miracles serving to attest its truth, uh, yeah, that's that's what warrants. But that's what you're ignoring, though. Sorry, I, I understand where you're going. I really do. Okay. But if there are these random other miracles, and they happen across the face of the world, and they happen to Muslims and Hindus, and uh, they happen to New Age spiritualists and, and whatever, they happen in a religious context. And those people have every much the same right as you do to say those miracles confirm the truth of my religion. Yeah, it, it depends. You need to establish that just because someone is a Muslim or is an atheist or something like that, that, that isn't, to my mind, a religious context or enough to establish that this miracle is serving to attest to the truth of that religious context. Um, you, you would, yeah, it would depend on your arguments being able to prove or, or demonstrate that this particular miracle was meant to serve that purpose. Uh, if you can do that, yeah, then that would be a Ghibli authenticating event. So that is, that is, I think, the thing that is the fly in the ointment, as, mu as much as my comments earlier about miracles not working particularly in Christian favor. I don't know of a major world religion today that doesn't claim miracles and religious authentication miracles. Yeah, but the, can you prove they're true? I, that's, I that's can't the, prove any miracle is true. Okay, but I can. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but this is, this is not my argument, you see. I'm arguing against yeah, miracles. But that, <laughs> no, but that, that's my point, is you, you're just assuming all these miracle claims are equally on equal levels. Uh, you know, that's why you need to get into it and assess um, you know, is is it true? Is is the are these Hindu miracles true? That that's the first criterion. The event. But I but I have gotten I'm, into these miracles, I'm, my I'm, friend. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to step in and, and step say in. Dale okay. does have uh, a a thesis um, 
that involves this. And this is this is not uh, Dale. Dale didn't come prepared to argue that particular thesis. Uh, but there is a. I I know that Dale has um, that particular thesis, and I know that that is something that we will uh, argue uh, at future when Dale has a, a chance to do it. But I I would. Um, I, I would suggest, as much as it loathes, loathes me to come to Dale's uh, defense right now, that uh, it, uh, even though what he what he says sounds half baked right now, it's only half baked because he hasn't had a chance to prepare his thesis for the show. I've 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 heard it and seen it. Uh, I've seen I've seen some of Dale's thesis here. What you're hearing from me is I have looked into. I was a Christian. Mm -hmm. I've been to faith healers. I've known friends that have been to faith healers. I live in a community where four of my extended family members think they are faith healers. I'm missing a left eye. You know what I don't get? I don't get calls from any of those four faith healers who legitimately think they've worked miracles saying, hey, you know what? We've got something for you. And that is healing. So when you say, I need to look into miracles, I've been down that road. If you think I'm not open to a confirming miracle, let me disabuse you. I am happy right now to go anywhere in the world, to pray any prayer, to work any religious ceremony, to read any book, to think any thought, to follow any religious prescription, whatever, to have a miracle authenticated. Okay. All right. So, yeah, uh, you think you've... Okay, great. Uh, we'll move on to the next one, and this is for you, Andrew. Um, so, this is sort of related to what we did before. So, I'll go with this one. You say that faith is the enemy of progress. Uh, can you explain that? Um, so, I think... In the context of that particular statement, we're talking about the kind of faith uh, that was mentioned earlier in the show, Hebrews uh, chapter 11. Mm -hmm. Now, I think in the sense, though, that you use the word faith, um, that we have some justified belief in reproducibility, that, that uh, when we use the word faith, we're using it in a way that, that argues for a predictable world. Right. Um, I think that kind of faith is not the enemy of progress as long as that sort of faith doesn't stand in the way of looking for that reproducibility of experimentation and verification. But the very moment that you use the word faith to appeal to a thing that cannot be tested and cannot be falsified, Faith is the enemy of progress because what you've done is you have placed yourself in a position to deny the reproducibility and testability of the world and you simply won't hear anything else, whether you're wrong or not. And so, yes, I think, uh, I think faith, particularly today in the United States, Christian faith is anathema to progress. Um, Anti-vaxxers are an example. People that deny global warming are an example. Uh, people who are uh, happy to spend their last dollar and pray a prayer that God is simply going to refill their bank account 
in some mysterious way. Yes, faith is the enemy of progress in every one of those contexts. Okay, uh, does anyone, uh, David, do you have anything to say? Yeah, just for, uh, briefly, I would point out that uh, you, Dale, are an evidentialist. Uh, and for anyone listening, uh, I, I would like to divide up Christianity into two categories, or the evidentialists and the non-evidentialists. Um, and so an evidentialist is one who says, uh, yeah, we've, got, we've got good reasons and evidences to believe the, the things that we believe. And there are those who are more like uh, the type of faith that uh, Jesus describes, and quite frankly, the type of faith the New Testament describes, uh, better to believe without seeing. Uh, and uh, that's, a, that's a very different thing. So uh, I prefer evidentialists on the one hand, uh, because you are talking about faith in a, in a way that makes more sense to me, but I don't think that you are speaking the same language that your Christian listeners uh, speak in that regard. Uh, the yes. second thing is I think that um, Matthew nailed it earlier. And I, I think that uh, any, anything that you would apply faith to, if, you, if, you're, if your hackles go up when someone says, can we fact check that, uh, then your faith is the enemy of progress and you should, you should put it away. If, if it can't stand being fact checked, um, then uh, yeah, that's, that's the bad kind. Okay, uh, Matthew. I've got very little to add. I I struggle with the attachment of faith and uh, to use David's words, evidentialists. I I think if you're if what you're relying on is uh, evidence and confirmation to get to get to the point that's most likely, you're you're using an approximation of the scientific method. And I don't think faith is the right word to use in that context. Uh, so, but. Everything else that I want to say has been said, so I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Fair enough. All right. Well, I think um, we're going to leave it at that um, and close off and then save the rest for another time. Um, so, yeah, I think thank you for listening, everyone, and say goodbye, everyone else. Uh, thank you. Everybody. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll come back and do it again. I've got some specific observations that I want to make about... Um, the show and some of the things that were said in the show that weren't covered in these questions, but I will happily wait uh, for the time when we reconvene to do that. Likewise, looking forward to a repeat. Thank you, Dale and uh, Andrew and David. Have a great day. Thank you, Matthew. Dale, thanks, brother. All right, take care. You too. All right, I will hit, this, hit the big red button uh, to stop the recording.